0: Hello, and welcome to the very first episode of the Thucydidesy podcast, with me, Neville Morley. Now, the basic idea of this is that, in my day job, as a teacher of ancient history, I research and lecture about the ancient Greek writer Thucydides, or Mr. T, as I'm quite often tempted to refer to him. Thucydides. Historian, arguably political theorist, arguably psychologist, student of strategy, whatever. Um, Enormously interesting ancient writer who's been surprisingly influential in the modern world as well. I mean, at least by the standards of ancient Greek and Roman writers, Thucydides is a name. He's someone people might actually have heard of, might come across in kind of relatively everyday reading. I mean, it may well be that sort of some of you listening to this have come to investigate Thucydides because of the thing known as the Thucydides trap, a theory that Thucydides helps us understand relationships between the US and China. And I mean, that's just one example of a long tradition, certainly all the way through the 20th century, of people looking to Thucydides as someone who understood what was going on in global events. Someone who understood democracy and authoritarianism and populism and conflict and war and so on and so forth. And then there's another tradition of Thucydides as the key historian, someone who's invented modern critical history two and a half thousand years ago, whereas, you know, it's only in the 19th century that similar ideas about treating the evidence critically really come into vogue. And there's another tradition of Thucydides as the great strategist, as someone who's read in military colleges and so forth. So, lots and lots of ways in which Thucydides is read today as some kind of authority, as the man who knows what's going on. And part of this means that Thucydides gets quoted. He appears on the Twitter, in newspapers, on internet quote sites and so forth, as the author of various snappy little one-liners. Which, in one way or another, kind of sum up something interesting or important or meaningful. But the point of this podcast, and this is kind of not so much my day job as something I do on the side many of these quotes are actually not really Thucydides. They've got his name attached, but he didn't say them. And It's really interesting, I think, to explore well, what's going on there? Who actually did say this stuff if it's not Thucydides? But why does it get attached to Thucydides? It's a kind of misinformation. It's not fake news, at least in the sense that there's no one there deliberately inventing Thucydides' quotes and trying to confuse everybody or to be absolutely accurate, there is one example I know of that we may look at in a later episode where someone actually invents a Thucydides quote and tries to fool everybody, but mostly what's going on is that people come across an interesting quote, they think, you know, other people might be interested in this, and they think it's Thucydides, and that's how they spread it to everybody else, but it isn't. Now, I will readily accept that this makes this podcast incredibly niche, and that you're probably sitting there thinking, okay, borderline obsessiveness. But I think there's at least some potential, not just for correcting this misinformation, but for finding out, well, what can we learn from this? What can we learn about the process of people spreading information people sort of developing knowledge via the internet what can we learn about how people see thucydides how people understand him how you know how do they sort of think that he could help us understand the modern world and as with any number of different things i mean you know i'm going to play this by ear it may well be that as the podcast series develops i'll start talking about all sorts of things besides dodgy quotations. We will see how it plays out. But anyway, for the moment, fake Thucydides. Thucidiacy. And I'm going to start this series with, arguably, the best example of this, certainly, pretty well, the most common fake Thucydides quote that you'll find on Twitter. Now, one reason for this is there's a thing called a social jukebox app which people sign up, and basically it tweets for them. So a lot of the time, it's firms who are wanting to build an internet presence, motivational speakers. For some reason, limo companies are big on this. Now, I haven't the faintest idea why a limo company thinks it's going to bring in the customers by sending out tweets. Well, great thoughts from any number of different figures, um, including entirely fake Thucydides quotes. So if you look up on Twitter, if you do a search for Thucydides, one of the things you're going to see a lot of is this particular quotation attached to a really odd picture of some people in college graduation dress. And if you see this, it's almost certainly the social jukebox app churning these out so there's a lot of that but there are also a load of people who come across this in different ways and tweet it themselves so it's not just this one malign system which refuses to pay any attention to my um requests for them to stop doing it okay noises off cat cat flap um and another one it's raining again uh you're just gonna have to um deal with the occasional feline interruption. Back to the quotation. Here we go. The society that separates its scholars from its warriors will have its thinking done by cowards and its fighting by fools. Now, the first question always is, how do we know this is not Thucydides? And in my researches into these quotes, actually, I may sometimes spend quite a lot of time trying to establish that. I look at something and think, okay, I don't recognise that. That doesn't look right. But it can take quite a long time to basically to satisfy myself that, no, this really is not genuine. So the simple, how do we know it's not Thucydides because it isn't in his work? Well, that's kind of true and kind of not. One obvious problem, Thucydides wrote in ancient Greek. These quotes are in English, so immediately we're dealing with translations. And the one thing we know about translations, you can do it differently. You can come up with a different English version of the same line in Greek or Latin or whatever. Moreover, Thucydides wrote Greek that is often complex and ambiguous and basically bloody difficult, so there's even more reason why we get different versions, different translations, that there's a kind of, in some cases, real struggle to get at what he's saying and think about how do we express that in English in a way which is going to make sense to somebody. So lots and lots of different translations. Again, if you are obsessive enough to sort of put the work in, you can compare the way in which the same line in Thucydides gets translated by different translators, and it can be quite radically different. And it's not that any of them are wrong. Some of them may be better, some may be worse, but they are simply trying in different ways to express what they think Thucydides was saying. So there are quotations that I come across claiming to be from Thucydides, where after some research I can eventually say, OK, yes, I can see where this is coming from. I may not like it as a translation, but actually you can trace it back and you can find the passage which it's, you know, it's trying to put across. You know, it it may be a bit overinterpreted or dodgy, but it is genuine. But there are plenty of translations, or plenty of quotes rather, where you can't find them in any published translation, and you can't find anything in Thucydides' work that looks enough like it that you could imagine that this is someone else's genuine translation. So, quite often, Trying to track down a let's call it an iffy Thucydides quote is this sort of longish process of trying to think. Okay, have I seen this before? Does a Google search throw it up? Um, can I think where in Thucydides this might fit, and then go and look at that passage and you know see if there's anything which matches? And occasionally the answer is well, actually we just don't know. I, you know, you can never prove the negative. You can't prove that this is definitely not in Thucydides, you can only say, well, there's no sign of it at all. The way that you can get a sort of, you know, a rather rather more confident decision as to the genuineness of a quote is if you find it somewhere else with no connection to Thucydides. So, at that point, you can say, okay, here we have got the line, and there's absolutely sort of no indication that this person is doing anything other than making it up themselves. And that's the case with this quotation, the society that separates its scholars from its warriors, etc., which is, I suppose, one reason why I have chosen it to kick off this series. It's a bit more straightforward. The words are not exactly the same, but The idea is, and the construction of the sentence is, and it's basically, it is so close as to be unmistakable. And that's this line the nation that will insist upon drawing a broad line of demarcation between the fighting man and the thinking man is liable to find its fighting done by fools and its thinking by cowards. And you can immediately see, why would we now find a simplified version? Well, for a start, that version isn't going to fit on Twitter, but more generally, you can put across the same idea in fewer words in slightly less confusing language so having found that i would say Eyo, it's pretty definitely the same quote it's just we've got a kind of 20th 21st century simplified version rather than going back to the late 19th century original and where does that original come from well it's from a biography of the nineteenth-century British general Charles Gordon, Gordon of Khartoum, as he's sometimes known today, as that's where he met his end. So biography of Charles Gordon, who is you know big, big hero of the British Empire in the nineteenth century. Um, I have a vague idea. There's been this sort of this new book published by the. British politician Jacob Rees Mogg of something like, you know, 12 great Victorians whom we all ought to be emulating because they were just better. Uh, And I think Gordon of Khartoum is one of them. So, you know, he's heroised for going out slaughtering lots of people in foreign lands in the name of Queen Victoria, etc. How this is supposed to help, I'm not sure. Anyway, uh, Gordon of Khartoum, and it's a biography of him, published in 1889 by another British military officer, William F. Butler. So the person who deserves credit for the scholars and warriors quote is Butler. And it's almost one reason for going around correcting it is thinking, well, you know, this is the one thing he might be remembered for, and it's being put under someone else's name. It's almost a bit sad. So, a bit about Butler. Um all of which is simply gleaned from standard uh, library resources and so forth. He's born in 1838 in County Tipperary. He joined the army at 20, which is a fairly standard career path if you're not going to be inheriting a substantial estate. He served in places like Canada, um, something called the Red River Expedition, which I had never heard of, not really having done so much 19th century history, It's entirely possible this means he's thoroughly notorious in Canada, but I'm I'm not sure. Anyway, Canada, Ghana, South Africa. He eventually reached the rank of Lieutenant General and was knighted. So it's actually General Sir William F. Butler. He also wrote books. Which I suppose marks him out as a slightly more unusual army officer. Uh, the Great Lone Land, for example, a narrative of travel and adventure in the northwest of America. The Wild Northland, you start seeing a theme here. The Wild Northland being the story of a winter journey with dogs across northern North America. And Red Cloud, the Solitary Sioux, which is, I, I can imagine the book is unspeakable, but it's such a great title, A Story of the Great Prairie. I mean, you get the idea. Um, Butler is about adventure. It's about traveling across the wilderness. And it's one man against the elements. Um you know, it's sort of this sort of mixture of, you know, geography and wildlife and wolves and, you know, sort of struggle in the face of adversity, etc, etc. His biography of Gordon appeared in a series on English men of action, and a contemporary reviewer commented on its fearful and wonderful style, which, again, it's, it's part of this pattern, and I'm tempted to say we can imagine the sort of audience that Butler was aiming at was predominantly boys and young men who would learn the right sort of, you know, virtuous, action-packed attitude to life. Now, the passage from which that quotation comes, I think, epitomises this perfectly. Butler's sort of pedagogic efforts the fact he wants to teach people good moral lessons and something else that some reviewers commented on his readiness to offer trenchant opinions on absolutely everything you know Butler has views you could say He's talking about a period in Charles Gordon's life when he was living quietly in Gravesend, devoting his energies to charity work. Um, And this gives Butler the opportunity to sketch out elements of Gordon's character which hadn't necessarily been so obvious when he was rushing round slaughtering the natives but he also takes the opportunity to elaborate his thoughts more generally about the relationship between the soldier and society. In the really unlikely event that you want to go and read the full biography for yourself, these are this is sort of pages 84 to 5 in the edition I was looking at. Anyway, long quotation. In England, there has long been an idea prevalent in the minds of many persons that the soldier should be a species of man distinct from the rest of the community. He should be purely and simply a soldier, ready to knock down upon word of command being duly given for that purpose, but knowing nothing of the business of building up, leaving that important branch of life to Mr. Mr. Civil Commissioner that and Mr. Civil Administrator that. It is needless to say that Charles Gordon held a totally different view of the soldier's proper sphere of action, and with him, the building part of the soldier's profession was far more important than the breaking part. The surgeon, who could only cut off a leg or amputate an arm, but who who knew nothing of binding up the wound or stopping an open artery, could not be of much account in any estimate of men, Gordon understood the fact that nations as well as individuals have pulses, that the leader who would lead to any definite end must know how to count these pulsations and, in addition to his skill as a sword-cutter, must be able to do a good deal of the binding up of wounds even though he had himself caused them. The nation that will insist upon drawing a broad line of demarcation between the fighting man and the thinking man is liable to find its fighting done by fools and its thinking by cowards." So, yes, I mean, it's part of the heroisation of Gordon, but it's also clearly the model for a new kind of public man, or a distinctive form of public man, that you should not simply be a general, you should also be an administrator, a leader, potentially, of course, a politician. I mean, if you were really cynical, you would start thinking, well... Butler is building Gordon up as a future leader of the country and perhaps even as one who sort of shouldn't have to go through all of that inconvenient voting nonsense. You know, why don't we just hand over our affairs to men like Gordon? And certainly, absolutely no hesitation, In handing over the affairs of millions of people around the globe who were certainly not going to be given any sort of democratic say in what's going on. You know, he's simply establishing, if you're ruled by Gordon, it's just going to be great, so stop complaining. It also fits in with the idea of soldiers shouldn't just be soldiers. Soldiers should have a broader understanding, a wider range of skills. Which I suppose is one place where you can start imagining how does this come to be associated with Thucydides? Now, it must be said, it's a pretty late development. I'm sorry, a cat has just started hurling things off the table. Um, I'm gonna pause this recording for a moment and sort this out. Right, as we were, um, does this sort of thing happen with normal podcasts? Uh, I suppose in theory I could try editing it out. But anyway, what the hell. We were talking about, yes, how, how does this quote come to be associated with Thucydides? And, well, actually, it's quite a long time before it does. Even in the late 1980s, people are quoting this and they're quoting it as the idea of Butler. In particular, in 1989, the Armed Services Committee of the House of Representatives appointed a panel to report on the state of professional military education. It's a panel that was then chaired by a congressman, Ike Skelton, and so its report is known as the Skelton Report. And this report opens with the quote from Butler, the nation that will insist, dum de dum credited to Butler without clearly any hesitation whatsoever. And yeah, it's a great quote for professional military education. If you're going to be discussing this issue of what kind of education do military officers need, how much of it, how far do they need to keep developing this over their course of their careers, what should the curriculum be in the war colleges and so forth, then as a principle this Butler idea could be one that you could find really useful. And certainly, it's a sort of... I mean, a lot of this is, we assume, Skelton's committee develop their ideas and then happen to find Butler's quote as a really neat way of introducing them. So, 1989, it's still Butler. And you could imagine, you know, this this was almost his moment. You know, people are sort of going back... Well, probably not going back and reading his books, but at least acknowledging that he's come up with this really nice conceptualization. By 2010, however, a report, again by the Armed Services Committee of the House of Representatives on the same subject, which indeed regularly refers back to the Skelton report, it's kind of an update, but it opens with the Thucydides quote. So it really is that Well, somehow they've managed to read the Skelton Report and fail to notice the quote from Butler and have instead come up with the simplified version attributed to Thucydides. Now, in between these dates, and obviously these are good dates because they are official United States publications, in between we can see that more people had been denying Butler the credit. They were using the line in one or other version, um, but more and more they were ascribing it to Thucydides. So in 2002, and this is what you get if you Google, in 2002 there's a discussion on a blog where someone attributes the quote to Butler and someone else comes along and said, well, no, you're absolutely wrong, it's Thucydides. Um, there are various speeches by... Um, U.S. Generals, U.S. Army Secretary in 2007, where they come out with the line and attribute it to Thucydides. So, to some extent, 2010, it must have seemed like the natural attribution. You know, who's heard of Butler? I and mean, the general principle, it's very easy to see why people in this context want to use the quote. I'm sorry, cat is trying to break out of the cat flap. I'm just going to pause again, if you're wondering what the rattling noise was in the background. And we're back. And the theory was this was all going to be quiet. Anyway, the great thing about the quote is the way in which it's perfectly suited to the topic of military education, even if that wasn't quite Butler's original intention. You know, it emphasises the need for education rather than just training which has been a, I suppose you would say, it's been a big United States thing in contrast to the way army training for decades has been organised in the United Kingdom, where the emphasis is precisely on technical skills and knowledge rather than a broader education. So especially in a US context, it's a really useful quote. In addition, particularly in the post 9-11 context, it offers a means of emphasising the importance of the military in society. The, you know, the idea that, you know, you don't want a sort of ruling class, you don't want a thinking class who don't have any experience or contact with war because they'll just be a bunch of cowards. Now, you could say, don't think about that in a bit more detail, and it's maybe a bit of a worrying thought, but it certainly does fit with a certain line of political discourse, emphasizing the centrality of the military, emphasizing the need for the military to be respected, and even with a degree of um, sort of implicit criticism of wimpy civilian administrators. So you can see why the quote comes to be popular with various groups. And I suppose the point is, Butler isn't famous enough to live up to the quote. Thucydides comes with this air of authority and experience. I mean, you know, he's the man who knew war firsthand. He gets cited within, say, collections of military quotations because he had been a general himself, and therefore what he has to say about war is automatically better. Um, The fact that he was a pretty unsuccessful general seems to be beside the point. And I mean, there are other quotes in Thucydides. Not necessarily Thucydides himself, but Thucydides quoting the Spartans, which offer a similar sort of perspective on the importance of the tough fighting man playing a central role in society. Now, the whole thing about the separation between the fighting man and the thinking man doesn't really make sense in an ancient Greek context, where, of course, if you were a citizen, you were also a soldier, Whereas, you know, the quote is much more clearly related to the 19th century context, where the British army is a professional army. The vast majority of the British population do not get involved in fighting. So claiming that this separation is dangerous makes sense. It doesn't make sense in 5th century Greece, but it's the sort of thing, you would say, that Thucydides ought to have said. Or maybe Napoleon ought to have said, but one of them. In which case, it's a very easy sort of move to think, well, kind of maybe they did. And I mean, certainly, someone who doesn't obsessively research this stuff could see the quote attributed to Thucydides, and yeah, it fits. It fits with the general image of what Thucydides is all about. This kind of hard nosed, realist, and indeed somewhat militaristic attitude towards the world and on the internet where anyone can publish any old rubbish and it's incredibly hard to get anything corrected or taken down because believe me I have tried then once a quote like this takes off it's almost impossible to eradicate even without automatic social jukebox machines but it doesn't stop me trying. Join me again at some point, probably in a month's time, for another episode of Quote Investigation. This has been the Thucydidesy Podcast with added cats. Thank you all.